Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Ephesians 4, 1. Again, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at these words today, may we apply them to our life and in our hearts. May we live them. Again, we thank you for their depth and importance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is a continuation as we study through Ephesians. This is our third message in the series. It takes up right where we left off last week. As we learned last week, we are considered saints in Christ And so as saints, Paul now challenges us to live like saints. Becoming a saint is God's part. It is by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. Living like saints is our part. It's what we need to do. And we have the the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. So today's message is entitled, An Outlook of Hope. An Outlook of Hope. Now, I admitted to you last week that uh, some saints do seem more saintly than other saints. Uh, In the kingdom, Paul calls all believers saints. And I told you that at times we are not all as saintly as we should be, but we are called to be saints nonetheless. So today, Paul gives us characteristics of a saint. If you were sitting there last week or this morning thinking, well, if we are created as saints or recreated through Christ, and again, Paul refers to us as saints, if we are saints, how do I even do that? What does a saint look like? How does a saint behave in their life? I'm glad you're asking that question because Paul's going to tell you this morning in chapter 4 exactly what the outlook of God's saints are supposed to, uh, are supposed to be and are supposed to have. Considering our outlook, I want to read to you from an excerpt of one of my favorite books. It is a classic theological book filled with profound doctrinal belief, uh, uh, truths. It's by Judith Verst, if I, Vorst, called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I don't know if you've read that or not, but it is classic reading and uh, profound. And so I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to read all of it, but most of it that I'll, I'll try to get through today. And there's a purpose. It is profound and it's so much like our life. This is from the perspective of a, little boy, of a little boy named Alexander. He says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard by, the, by mistake. I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box, but in my breakfast box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. He loves Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson's let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be car sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. 
At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said, I sing too loud. At counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. <laughs> I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm going to Australia. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot, and while we were waiting for my mom to get in the car, Anthony, Anthony made me fall where, I, where it was muddy. And when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with the car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I told everybody. No one even answered when we picked up my dad at his office, he said I couldn't play with his copying machine, but I forgot. He also said to watch out for the book on his desk, and I was careful as could be, except for my elbow. He also said, don't fool around with the phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said, please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot, my soap got in my eyes, and my marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad pajamas. I hate railroad pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. How's your outlook today? Have you been having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week? Some people would say that about their life. We're living in a strange time. We're living in a strange world. But remember, our outlook is not to be determined by the pattern of this world. Remember last week we saw that Paul said, do not be conformed any longer by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So today, I want us to notice a few very important things from Ephesians chapter 4 about the outlook of a saint, the outlook of a believer. That's you and me, if you're a believer in Christ. Number one, our outlook dictates our relationships. Our outlook dictates our relationships. If you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't have any relationships, well, you might want to think about your outlook. <laughs> I don't have any friends. You might want to think about your outlook. Your outlook dictates your relationships. I want us to begin in chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through 3 for us again. 
As Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you receive. We've been, we have received the calling of being God's saints. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice these characteristics are all directed toward other people, toward relationships. Humility, gentleness. Patience, perseverance, love, and unity. Here Paul is speaking about the church, by the way, and he's speaking to the church. Now, we ought to have these characteristics in the world outside of the church, and that has its own challenges. Because this world doesn't get this. The world does not behave in this manner. In fact, you probably encounter people quite frequently out in the world who are the exactly, exact opposite of this. They have no patience, no humility. They're not gentle. They're very harsh. They're not patient. They have no love and there's no unity in this world. There's only strife. But you and I are called to be different in the midst of that. We're the light of the world, Jesus says, and we're supposed to live like light. So here he's actually talking to the church in Ephesus and he says, Ephesian church, this is how you're to treat one another starting in the church, from Christian to Christian, saint to saint. If we don't treat each other like this, we're not going to treat others outside the church like this. So he is addressing the church. Keeping the bond of peace in church is not automatic. I've learned that. I haven't learned much over the years, but I've learned that. Keeping the bond of peace in church is not automatic. You have to work for it. Now, I'll brag on you a little bit. On the most part, First Baptist Church is a peaceful church. And to be clear, I'm going through this series and this passage and this sermon topic this morning, not because of any problem in the church. It's just that I wanted to do a study in Ephesians, and that brings us to chapter 4 today. Thank you, guys, for being peaceful in church. Amen. Amen. That's right. Amen. Because I, I've been a part of churches, and you have probably been part of churches in the past, if you've been going to church very long, where there was a huge problem with peace in the church. Um, but for any church, there are always challenges. For example, what ministries you do in your church are important. But what others do in your church is important too. You may be tempted to think that your ministry or your efforts are the most significant here. Or, you, or what you do is more vital to the kingdom than what others are doing. And your efforts should receive greater priority than others. And it is true that some ministries are more public than others. We have ministries that you all know about. We talk about them a lot from the pulpit and from the announcements, and everybody knows about them. But there are other ministries that go on quietly here at First Baptist Church that are just as vital and just as important in God's eyes. I may have told you before, we have a, a prayer group that meets every Monday morning that prays for the church, prays for the staff, and prays for your pastor, and prays for the needs in this church. And we desperately need that group of people praying. That's an important ministry. No ministry is greater than any other. And in all of that, we have to love one another and get along in that. It happens in every church, trust me. People can become territorial 
Sometimes there are turf wars in church. That exact same thing happened in the church of Corinth. Remember in 1 Corinthians? I've told you this before, the Corinthian church, I'm so thankful for it because they messed up everywhere you can mess up. They were a dysfunctional mess. And so it gave us a lot of guidelines through the, through the hand of the Apostle Paul from the heart of God about how we shouldn't behave as a church. And so of all the dysfunctional things that they had, and they were super dysfunctional, they, they had one problem that Paul had to deal with immediately in chapter one of 1 Corinthians. Do you remember the problem? That Paul said, there, there are, are the factions in the church. Some said, I follow Paul. Uh, some said, I follow Apollos. Some said, I follow Jesus. And they were using Paul and Apollos and Jesus as an excuse to have cliques in the church. And the cliques didn't particularly care for one another in the church. They didn't like each other. They all thought they were superior to one another. And it was a greater problem that came up, even in spiritual gifts. They thought some gifts were were more important and their gift was more important. They were having big shouting matches in the worship service. Paul was concerned that people thought they were crazy in the service. It was getting out of hand. And so Paul had to deal with that. There has to be unity in God's church. There are no ministries here or in any church that are more important than others. They are all important to God and useful in his kingdom. So always proceed in your ministry with the right outlook that all people and all ministry matters. And again, by the way, thank you for keeping the bonds of peace here. But our outlook does, just, does not just affect our relationships with people. And by the way, did you notice the, like these all are concerning people? All of these characteristics that he mentions are concerning people. But it also affects our relationship with God. Our outlook dictates our worship. If you walked in those doors mad this morning, you're going to have a hard time worshiping. I love music for that reason. I'm thankful for Roxanne and for the team because I need for them to take your anxiety and your anger and your bitterness and turn it to joy by the time I get up here. <laughs> because if they don't, I'm going to have a hard time. So uh, I appreciate, you know, music's so powerful for that. It's wonderful for that. And I appreciate that. It has this ability to turn our hearts to worship, to bring us together in unity. Often our outlook is not where it should be when we come to God's house. It may not be anger or bitterness or in this list. It may be that you came in this morning so worried and with so much anxiety, you're struggling just to stay focused even now. Next, our outlook should lead us and others toward God. Our outlook should lead us and others toward God. Now that is pretty self-evident. All of those words that he described, patience and gentleness and humility and love and unity, these are all beautiful descriptions that are characteristics of God and compel us toward God. But the opposite is true as well. What, what kind of outlook do you have in life? I remember the story of two shoe salesmen that went to a, a native island to sell shoes. and They discovered when they got there, none of the natives there had, were wearing shoes at all. They were all barefooted. 
One salesman said to his company, no one wears shoes here, I'm coming home. But the other salesman said, send 10,000 shoes, everybody here needs shoes. <laughs> it's a matter of outlook. David was like that, King David in the Old Testament. Everybody else said Goliath was so big we couldn't possibly win against him. But his size didn't matter to David, and it may be that David thought, he's so big I can't miss. It's a matter of outlook. Next, our belief in Christ does not guarantee a great outlook. Our belief in Christ does not guarantee a great outlook. You probably have known believers throughout the years that did not have a great outlook. It's not guaranteed. We have believers in the Bible who didn't have a good outlook. They had faith but their outlook was not what it should be. I have Christian friends from all walks of life, all ages, all situations, all personality types. <clears throat> Humble and gentle may not be you. Patience may not be your strong suit, but Paul isn't interested in your disposition. And God doesn't care if it's your personality type or not. You've been redeemed and transformed so your outlook should be humble, gentle, patient, loving, and unifying. And if it's not, change it through the Spirit of God. I compelled you to do that last week with what we talked about last week. Listen to me. Through Christ, you can change. We have people here that are 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80, 90 years old. And you may be thinking, I've been this way all my life. I've had this attitude or this personality deficit, this personality problem. And that's just who I am. And that's just your way of saying I quit trying, by the way. Listen, through the Spirit of God, you can change. Now, whether you're going to change or not, I can't tell you, but I can tell you this. You can change. Stop thinking that you can't because through the Spirit of God, you can. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, we hear about one of God's prophets who knew the doctrine. In fact, Jonah was an upstanding prophet. That is, he, there were false prophets of the day. Jonah was not one of the false prophets. He was a real prophet of God. Powerful, impactful, truthful. And he was to be respected because of the fact that he was one of God's prophets. But when God called him to go preach to the church in Nineveh, he did not want to do that. Remember, he fled, the boat started to sink in a storm, and so he confessed, okay, it's me, I'm going in the wrong direction. So they threw him overboard, and he got swallowed by a great fish and was spit out three days later onto the shore. And I always call that the ultimate attitude adjustment. Three days in the belly of a fish would change anybody's attitude. So he was willing after that to go preach to the Assyrians, but he was not happy about it. His outlook was not good. <clears throat> in fact, it was the shortest sermon in history. He went to the Ninevites and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed because he hated Assyrians. That was uh, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And he couldn't wait. He counted the days until God was going to strike them all dead. So he gave that message. It's extraordinary because he's a, he's a foreigner. He's a stranger. Nobody knows who he is. Why would they give any credence to his message? 
I would suspect that Jonah expected to be laughed at everywhere he went. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. To his shock and chagrin, they didn't laugh. Instead, they became convicted and terrified. And the whole city repented. Well, that really made Jonah mad. Yeah, he's just mad as could be. He had a wrong attitude. And so in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he says this. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. There we go. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Here's what Jonah said. Look at the verse. He prayed to the Lord. Here's his prayer. Now, you and I probably have bad prayers sometimes, but this is this takes the cake. Oh, Lord, this is, not, is this not what I said when I was still at home? Here's, here's what he's saying. I remind you, God, of what I already told you. You are a sappy pushover. And I knew that if I came and did this, you would do that. You would go and relent. He's already warned God that he's going to do that. So he reminds God, just a little reminder, I said, I told you so. <laughs> See, he's reminding God of God's deficits here. Uh, and then he says, that is why I was so quick, quick to flee to Tarshish. That's, that's on the boat that nearly sank. And so he, he rebelled against God and fled from God. And here he's solely and squarely pinning the blame on his fleeing on who? He's blaming God. He said, can you blame me? You're a big pushover, so I had to go in the other direction. I'm surprised, frankly, that there wasn't just a lightning bolt right then. It was all over for Jonah. But I, again, I wonder if our prayers are any better sometimes. And so he says, God, I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in love. Well, he should be appreciative that God is slow to anger. And so he says, just kill me, for I'd rather die. But the Lord said, have you any right to be? It's not your place. It's none of your business. You have the wrong outlook, Jonah. Jonah had great faith, though. In fact, he knew God could destroy. He never, he never questions that God has the power and the authority to destroy the Assyrians. He knows God can do it. He has great faith. It's just that he had a terrible, terrible outlook. So that begs the question. Can our outlook be changed? Well, let me tell you how. First of all, and these are pretty simple, evaluate your present attitude. Evaluate. Do I have a good outlook? Do I have a bad outlook? If you're not good at evaluating, ask your family members. They'll tell you. <laughs> evaluate your present attitude and your present outlook. These characteristics of patience and love and unity and Humility and perseverance. Ask them. They'll tell you. Number two, have the desire to change. You will never, ever change in your life until you really want to. And a lot of folks just don't want to change. And if you don't want to change, I got nothing for you. <laughs> you can read all the verses you want. The Pharisees knew tons of scripture. They didn't change. Their hearts were just hard as a rock. 
And so you have to be willing to change. You have to have the desire to change. Not change others, change yourself. And then third, you got to change the way you think, your thought patterns. Because even now, your mind can be taking you to an area of blaming everybody else or excusing this or that, but pastor, you don't understand this or you don't know my problems. Daniel Defoe gave us some good advice on how to answer this question through his fictitious character, Robinson Crusoe. That's been a long time since junior high. Do you remember that book? The first thing that Robinson Crusoe did, he was stranded on a deserted island. The first thing he did when he found himself on that deserted island was to make out a list. Do you remember that in the book? He made out a list. On one side of the list, he wrote down all of his problems, and he had some problems. On the other side of the list, he wrote down all the good things, all the blessings, all the bad stuff on one side, all the good stuff on the other side. On one side, he wrote, I do not have any clothes. Well, that's a problem. On the other side, he wrote, but it's warm and I don't really need any. On one side, he wrote, all the provisions were lost. On the other side, he wrote, but there's plenty of fresh fruit and water on the island. And on down the list, he went. In doing so, he discovered that for every negative aspect about his situation, there was a positive aspect as well, something to be thankful for. It's easy for us to find ourselves on the island of despair. It's a matter of outlook, which leads me to a final and crucial observation today. A great outlook is never determined by your situation. A great outlook is never determined by your situation. Now in the world, it's always determined by their situation, but in God's kingdom, it is never determined by the situation. And I can prove it. If we go back to our passage for today, Ephesians chapter four, verse one, it's easy to, to miss this and you don't wanna miss it. At the very beginning, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you. As a prisoner for the Lord is not a philosophical statement that, oh yeah, yeah, we're prisoners and so we've got it bad. Our government's given us a difficult time. We're losing the freedom of religion. That's not what he's talking about. When Paul says he's a prisoner, you know what he means? It means he's in jail. He's a prisoner. He's in chains. This is about 60 AD. He was writing from a jail cell in Rome. And so as he's writing this, he's in custody. And being in custody in the first century wasn't like being in custody today. He had no rights as a prisoner. He had no three square meals a day and he couldn't sue the government if he didn't like what was going on. In fact, he was always just minutes or days away from being killed. And so he's in prison when he writes this. And so he writes all these beautiful words and this description about how we ought to be from the worst kind of situation that he could possibly be in. In fact, whatever your situation is today, if you're sitting there thinking, well, pastor, you're not living my life, I bet it's better than Paul's life. <laughs> I don't see any chains on your hands and feet. And so from that perspective, he wrote this. A great outlook is never determined by our situation. Whatever your situation, it's better than Paul's was. Last year, as the pandemic was beginning to hit hard, a woman named Juanita Giles was sitting at her mother's bedside during the pandemic, and her mother was in hospice care. 
It was the last day of her mom's life. Hours passed and she wanted to read to her mother because she was an avid reader. She loved children's books. And there were many that dealt with death and dying, but she didn't want to read from any of those. So in her final hours, true story, last year, in her final hours with her mother on this earth, she read to her, you guessed it, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. She shares this. I read it aloud over and over and over again. I must have read that book 20 times if I read it once. And never did I feel Mama was sick of it. And I never got sick of it either. Again, Mama was a very practical person. And even though I'm sappy sometimes, I am as well. If Mama somehow knew that day was her last, she also knew that waking up with gum in your hair is the pits. Not to mention having to take three cranky kids to the dentist after school. She certainly knew having something you hated for supper made a day so much more worse, or so much worse, and that sometimes kissing on the TV is the last straw. <laughs> you see, there are a million ways, she says, to have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, and I knew that last day was going to be the big one for me and for Mama. So I read Alexander. I read it to Mama my voice muffled by a mask until I was hoarse. I read it as I held her motionless hand in my gloved hand. I read it as her vitals were being taken. I read it to her aides as they came to check on her. And I read it as the sun set. I read it until I didn't even have to look at the words anymore. I read it until that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day came to an end. Sometimes life isn't easy. Sometimes life is jarring, is it not? But God is still there, still loving, still interceding. Christ is still resurrected, and God still gives us hope in salvation. And that hope will find its fulfillment in heaven, in a world, a time, and a life that outweighs anything that we're going through right now. So how's your outlook today? Pray with me. Father, as we come to you this morning, we acknowledge that sometimes we have that attitude. We wake up on the wrong side of the bed and everything that happens seems to be a conspiracy against us to give us a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But we are reminded that we are not pawns of Satan anymore we are reminded that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are reminded that our, our, our life has hope and it has purpose. We actually have a purpose for our life. And while we may come and go and not be noticed by this world, we are noticed by you, redeemed by you, loved by you. You are patient, kind, and gentle. Father, I pray that you would Help us become the saints that we are called to be. May our words and our thoughts, our outlook this week, reflect the fact that we are your saints. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you today? It may be that you're terrible at all of those characteristics and you know you need a complete transformation. It may be 
however, more likely that there's one thing there that really gets you. You really struggle with one characteristic or another. And so I challenge you this morning to go to God right here, right now, and say, God, help me with this. Transform me. I've been conforming myself to the pattern of this world, and so today, help me begin to to conform to your likeness. It could be that you are a pawn of this world. You're tossed back and forth because you've never surrendered to Jesus Christ. I want you to know God can change that today, here, now. Don't wait till next week or next month. Here. Just come down and say, Pastor, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And that's what it is. It is a surrender. You give your life to Him. Repent of your sins. Believe in faith that He died for your sins on the cross. And believe in in faith in the resurrection. And God will save you, forgive you, redeem you, and give you eternal life. Could be God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church. If God is speaking to you this morning, this invitation is for you. So would you stand? No one's looking around. Everyone stand. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. And as we pray, you come.